First, the questions were around social distancing, then about masking and now vaccines. What must and should an employer do as it navigates the latest round of return to work concerns? In this episode of the PBPA podcast, Chris Caccio and Katie Barton with the law firm Kilpatrick Thompson will walk us through some legal requirements and general tips for navigating workplace safety a year and a half into this pandemic. Hello and welcome to the PBPA podcast. In each episode of the PBPA podcast, we explore legal questions relevant to Georgia nonprofits. I'm your host, Sarisha Gunta, Counsel and Education Director at the Pro Bono Partnership of Atlanta. PBPA strengthens our community by engaging volunteer attorneys to provide nonprofits with free business legal services. We provide numerous free resources via our website, including articles and webcasts specific to Georgia nonprofits and their business legal concerns. We also provide direct legal services to our clients. For more information on client eligibility requirements, to apply to be a client, or to access our VAST Learning Center, visit our website at pbpatl.org. Before we jump into this episode's topic, keep in mind that this podcast is general information, not legal counsel. Contact your attorney for guidance on your nonprofit's specific situation. Katie and Chris, welcome. I appreciate you both taking the time to answer some of the many questions we have around reopening. Thank you, Sarisha. This is Katie. I appreciate the opportunity for for Chris and I to chat today with y'all and and to try to provide some clarity on some of the the most common questions that employers are having today. And thank you very much for having us. We hope that we're able to provide some uh, useful information for all the listeners. Uh, This is an area that's constantly changing. So we will certainly do our best to give you the answers as of right now. Let's start there. The questions and legal considerations around reopening are changing day to day. So to start off, can you tell us where are we today? Um, And we're recording this on Monday, September 27th. So so as of today, uh, on September 9th, President Biden Um, issued an edict that OSHA develop an emergency temporary standard that will apply to all private employers with 100 or more employees. Um, He also issued an executive order regarding uh, federal contractors um, that also includes a vaccine mandate. And then back in August, a emergency temporary standard was issued with respect to nursing homes. And that's since been expanded. So it's pretty broad. Yeah, to follow up. um, So there's been a lot of activity at the federal level um, regarding vaccine mandates. And certainly this administration is going to test the limits of its authority over employer vaccine mandates of private employers particularly. Um, How that all plays out, I think, remains to be seen. At at a local or a more local level within the state of Georgia, um, there's not a lot of activity and certainly not leaning toward 
the direction of this administration. If anything, the direction from the governor, um, Governor Kemp, has been going in the other direction and, and trying to restrict to some degree what private businesses and employers are able to do. Um, at this time, the only real restriction is in the city of Atlanta that businesses in the city of Atlanta have uh, an indoor face mask requirement that would have applied to both businesses and also to employers. Um, one Republican state senator has said that he will introduce legislation banning vaccine mandates or related requirements around like vaccine passports. Uh, but that legislation it can't be filed until November 15th for the November 22 session, which starts in January. So there's nothing pending yet. Um, we'll just have to wait and see if it does get filed, um, what kind of traction it gets. Currently, Montana is the only state that has a, that type of prohibition on an employer vaccine mandate. And I, I think to Katie's point, it's important to mention that this emergency temporary standard is going to be federal and federal is going to trump state. So that's going to sort of take precedent over the state law. For now, at least in Georgia, are employers currently permitted to require that employees be vaccinated? Absolutely. Um, employers in Georgia can implement an employer vaccine mandate. And I know Chris and I, I know I've been involved. I'm sure Chris has been involved yes. also in helping implement those, roll those out, answer questions. The, the caveat is that employees uh, particularly of employees of employers who are covered by Title VII and the ADA, employees can request exemptions from any vaccine mandate on disability grounds or on uh, sincerely held religious belief grounds. So employers who are covered by Title VII and the ADA will have a duty to accommodate. Will have a duty to accommodate medical requests and religious requests. Um, you have to, the employee would first have to demonstrate that they have a disability that's covered by the ADA and or that they hold a sincerely held religious belief. Um, at that point, once the exemption is met from that perspective, the, the real focus turns to what is the reasonable accommodation that has to be provided. And that's where there's a lot of discussion around what is a reasonable accommodation. And Certainly, an employer will still have the ability to say that it is an undue burden under the ADA or Title VII to allow an unvaccinated employee to come into the workplace. And so the really the accommodation discussions tend to focus on, on social distancing and masking requirements and work from home or work from home requirements um, or work from home accommodation. Or if it's possible to segregate the unvaccinated yeah. employee. Some employees are saying that they want to be allowed to come in and work in the building because they value that collaboration, um, in-person collaboration aspect as well. Others are trying to stay home. And I think it's important to note, too, that the employee's preferred accommodation is not the one that has to be granted. Um, so an employee may ask in, uh, to continue to be allowed to come into the office, but to physical distance and mask and perhaps be physically separated and an employer can still say, we're not going to grant you that accommodation. We'll grant you another one in light of your medical exemption or your religious exemption. Um, so the employee cannot insist on a particular accommodation that is only entitled to a reasonable accommodation that does not cause an undue burden on the employer. That's interesting. Let's speak a little bit more about 
those religious exemptions. Um, what should an employer do when an employee approaches them and tells them that they will not get the vaccine due to religious beliefs? So, so when an employer becomes aware that an employee's reason for not getting the vaccine has to do with their religion, some guidance from the EEOC has said that unless you have reason to question whether there's a sincerely held belief, I mean, you really shouldn't ask a whole lot. But if you do have those questions, you might elicit information from the employee. What What's the religion? Is there something specific about the vaccine that is um, preventing you from getting it? Just ask them for an explanation about that. And assuming they're able to provide that, that's when you need to jump into the interactive process. And in that interactive process, you are talking with the employee about what accommodation they want. You certainly should ask what kind of accommodation they are seeking um, and have conversations around the accommodation they want as well as other possible accommodations to their religious exemption. Um, Again, one is that the employee can still come into the workplace, but with a mask and physical distancing, um, they could be limited to a certain part of the building and really be isolated from the rest of the workforce. I think the more common both request and employer desire is um, to have an employee continue to work remotely um, if they've been, especially if they've been working remotely for the duration of the pandemic, is to to continue that. Um, And one thing I've been counseling clients on when it comes to this is that For a long time, employees have been working remotely if their jobs were amenable to that. Um, And so be mindful of now saying that an employee can't do their job remotely because there's going to be 18 months or so of history to either uh, support that decision or to undermine that decision, um, depending on that particular employee's track record or work record of working remotely. Um, that although everyone now we're in a place where every a lot of employers want to get back into the office, and that in a, in and of itself would not be enough to 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 really justify saying that an employee can't work from home anymore. Um, so that there are some nuances here, and every every discussion, every interactive process is different, and there's no uh, real we we can give you the framework of getting to the interactive process. Um, Completely a case-by-case basis. I mean, every case is going to involve different facts. So you're going to need to tailor the interactive process to that. And I think you want to, employers, especially small employers, want to be careful jumping from you get a religious exemption to there's no accommodation that doesn't cause an undue hardship. Um, So, First, like generally speaking, we believe that a court will be um, will look at undue hardship um, in a more employer friendly way, if you will. Um, So some employers might rely on that general principle to kind of quickly move from, okay, you get an exemption to but there's no accommodation that doesn't create more than a de minimis burden on the employer. Um, and the, the risk in that is, one, we there isn't a lot of case law or a lot of authority, period, 
around what is an undue burden under the religious exemption. So that's going to develop. Um, and then second, if you kind of jump straight from you get the exemption, but we're still going to separate your employment because there's no accommodation that doesn't create a diminis- uh, an undue hardship, we, we are concerned that there will, have, there will have to be test cases to employers separating employment under even with a religious exemption. And those types of test cases, which might be funded by particular uh, political leaning groups um, that have a lot of support and a lot of backing can be devastating to a small employer in terms of litigation costs and attorney's fees. That's a very good point, Katie. Nobody wants to be the test case. So that's exactly why we recommend being conservative when doing that analysis. Well, what should an employer do? if an employee refuses to comply with the mandatory vaccine policy. We've talked a lot about the religious exemption and there's also medical exemptions. The burden on an employer to prove that a particular accommodation is an undue hardship under the ADA for a medical exemption is higher. It's, I think there's no question that it's higher. It's just the degree to which it's higher from the religious exemption undue burden showing. Once you once an employee has established that they either are entitled to a medical or a religious exemption, um, that's again where we hit the interactive process, and it's very important that that interactive process is allowed to run its course, and that all of the possible accommodations are discussed. And but I, I feel fairly comfortable in saying that under both undue hardship analyses, an employer will have good. What uh, will be well founded to say that it is an undue burden to allow the employee to come into the building unvaccinated. Um, that is something that an employee may want, but I feel again I feel comfortable saying that employers don't have to allow that. Um, in, in addition to uh, having perhaps their own views of things, there's also the OSHA general duty of safety clause, where employers have the general duty to provide a safe workplace. Um, that there's free from direct threats of safety and harm. And certainly there is a strong argument that allowing an unvaccinated employee into the building for hours and hours at a time um, is compromising the safety of everyone else there. And there's a direct threat to the safety of other employees. So what the next step will be, because perhaps you have a general have decided we're not going to let anyone in that's unvaccinated and including customers and visitors and vendors, not just employees. And to slow down before making that jump to, but you can't do your job remotely. So we're going to separate. That's going to be the right answer in some of the cases. And that's going to be the right answer after a lot of thought and going around. So we have talked about so far religious exemptions and medical exemptions and making accommodations for those situations. What if an employee refuses for other reasons? Sarisha, you may have been also asking about personal objections to the vaccine. And so if an employee doesn't qualify for a religious or a medical exemption and just purely has a personal objection to the vaccine, such as it's been rushed to development, um, don't trust it, um, you know, I've been told by my, my sister's friend's doctor not to take it. Um, those are not protected reasons. So the only protected reason to get an exemption that requires some accommodation 
is medical and religious. An employee who has a purely personal objection is not entitled to an exemption and is not entitled to an accommodation process at all. So if it's a purely personal exemption and the employer has decided we're not going to entertain purely personal objections, then the natural next step would be separation of employment. Within that, be mindful of, of the discretionary decision-making and be sure that that decision is applied to all similarly situated employees. Consistency is yeah. the key. You yeah. just want to do it consistently across the board so you're not opening your up, yourself up to some type of discrimination claim. You shouldn't pick and choose which employees' personal objections to entertain. You should be consistent in how you roll out that decision not to entertain them. And aside from even legal issues, also employee morale issues. Yep. That if we, if it's perceived that high-performing, high-revenue-generating salespeople, you know, are being allowed to um, get around the vaccine requirement, but the receptionist is not. Um, that's certainly going to affect, if nothing else, um, employee morale within the office that there is this deemed hierarchy of importance that on such an important issue. Um, be mindful that allowing any vaxxed employee, unvaxxed employee into the workplace um, may cause fully vaxxed employees to refuse to come in. Um, again, feeling they, they may certainly feel like they're not being protected by their employer by the employer allowing unvaccinated employees into the office. Um, so there's there's no easy answers. Um, but once you've set your course, to, Chris picked the good one word as consistency and is staying true to what that initial policy is and not letting the exceptions overcome the policy um, just, you know, to a high degree. And Katie, you just mentioned something that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, what if you have an employee who is not comfortable with the safety precautions being taken at the workplace? What if once an office reopens, can an employee be forced to come back to work in person, even if they are uncomfortable with employer safety precautions? This goes to something I know that Katie had mentioned um, when she was answering your last question. I mean, a lot of this revolves around OSHA standards. So under OSHA, an employee can refuse to work if there um, is a specific hazard within the workplace um, that the employer has not corrected and which is likely to cause death or serious bodily injury from that specific hazard. There hasn't been specific guidance on this, but we're advising clients that it, uh, employees aren't going to be able to just say, we don't feel like you're taking proper safety precautions. As long as an employer can show that, look, we're doing everything that we've been guided to do through CDC, OSHA, they're, they're following all the guidance. It wouldn't be enough uh, for them to refuse to work and, and they could be terminated for that. But at the same time, I mean, if an employer is falling short on doing what, what's expected of them in terms of the CDC and OSHA guidance, if an employee can point to something specific that they're falling short, they have a much better argument for their refusal to work. I think it's important here to hear the employee out and find out what it is that they think is not being handled well, have a 
dialogue about it. And it, it may end up being that a particular employee is just generally uncomfortable being in public after being at home for 18 months. And you can kind of work through it and provide some assurances and, and set up some parameters that they're comfortable with. There may also be employees who there will be no level of, of practices at the workplace that, that, that satisfies them and they may have a particular medical issue such that being in any open air in, indoor environment with a lot of people that because of a particular underlying condition leads them to be more vulnerable to, to serious illness or to death from COVID. And so then we're back into the ADA. So we kind of started at OSHA and perhaps we check all the OSHA boxes and there's no OSHA non-compliance issue, but we still have an employee who has a disability who is at higher risk of, of complications if they get COVID. And, and we certainly now know that fully vaxxed people can spread COVID. Um, so even if everyone's vaxxed, it still happens. You may need to work through the interactive process on the ADA side with that particular employee to determine if they have a disability that that, real, that, that prohibits them from coming into the office in an open environment. And is there an accommodation like working remotely? Outside of these OSHA issues and these ADA issues, with individual employees, if, if there's a return to work requirement, then certainly an employer can insist on it. Um, again, being mindful of consistency and equal, you know, fair application of that, of that expectation. And to build on what Katie was talking about, I think it's important to mention that if an employee has a family member that's uh, immunocompromised, that they wouldn't be covered under the ADA, meaning an employee can't say, well, I'm taking care of uh, my mother and, and she has this health condition that could be exacerbated if, if I caught COVID. Um, so that, that type of situation wouldn't be covered by the ADA. It would only be the employee's medical condition. And again, we're not saying that if an employee requests an accommodation in that situation, don't grant it. I mean, there certainly could be uh, practical or business reasons that you want to work with the employee, but they're not legally required to do it. Wow. Lots of, lots of possibilities here. And when a nonprofit gets to the point where they've decided what they're going to do and how they want to move forward and how should they go about distributing this information to their employees? Like if they have a policy or just emails that they send out, what is the best way to distribute this information among the workforce? It really goes all, all back to being consistent. I think that a nonprofit should look how they've distributed policies in the past, whether they're handing employees a, a physical memo, if they're just sending an email. Uh, if, the, if they're sending an email, our recommendation is to at least get some type of acknowledgement form where the employee says, yes, I've received this policy, I understand it, just in case somewhere down the road you need to go back to that acknowledgement. Um, if an employee tries to claim that they weren't aware of the policy or what was required. How should a nonprofit employer record or um, document, keep track of who's received a vaccine and who hasn't? 
should they um, just keep a checklist next to the employee's name, they put a check mark, yes or no vaccinated, or should they actually get a copy of the vaccine card? I've seen clients so far do this in, in all of those ways that you've mentioned, where they are requiring some kind of affirmation of vaccine status and then keeping a record of that. Um, or asking employees to send in pictures of their vaccine cards or provide, you know, provide it to be copied. I've certainly seen that. So employers are choosing to do this in all sorts of ways. Um, Some are following the honor system and kind of taking employees word for it. Like I wouldn't, I I wouldn't really recommend that. I would um, try to go a step further than that, but, or, or scheduling meetings with employees to just show it you know, maybe even via Zoom to just show, you know, hold it up in front of the camera and show the vaccine card. Um, and then, yes, there's a, how do you record it? And the the real meat there is understanding and appreciating that an employee's vaccine status, however that is communicated to an employer, is confidential medical information that needs to be maintained in a separate, secure location away from the personnel file. That's all confidential medical information that belongs in a medical folder, does not belong in the main personnel file. And the access to those folders are limited only to those who need to know. Um, Supervisors, for instance, don't always have access or need to know medical information. Um, So an employer can ask the question, are you vaccinated? And can get the information, yes or no. But once that question's answered, that is confidential medical information that has to be maintained confidentially, just like any other type of medical information. Um, and so that's what we want to be sure that whether it's getting a copy of each employee's card or having a sit down with each employee or maintaining a spreadsheet and checking employees, that that spreadsheet, if that's what it is, is locked And I think, Katie, for that very reason, we're recommending that each employer have a designated person whose responsibility is for tracking vaccination status, maintaining records, because they'll know the rules regarding disclosure, segregating the medical information. Um, So it, it certainly makes the whole process much more efficient if you have one designated uh, employee that's responsible for all of that. Great recommendation. And as employers, if they move forward with the vaccine, mandatory vaccine policy, what about booster shots? How should booster shots be incorporated into a vaccine policy? Uh, Obviously booster shots could be a little bit down the road. We're recommending that employers treat uh, booster shots in the same manner that um, the vaccine mandate is being treated, that's assuming that um, the definition of fully vaccinated will eventually be revised to include your two shots plus the booster. And I think that we thought booster shots were imminent and uh, that we were all going to be eligible like soon for them. Um, that but those of us who were not immunocompromised are over 65. And once the, we're all running off the CDC definition right now, fully vaxxed. And so once that definition is updated by the CDC, then it would, you know, then it would kind of be incorporated, if you will, into any policy that 
references the concept of being fully vaccinated that we'll have to work through how a booster shot plays into that as well. So far, we have been talking about um, where we stand today, rules that could apply to any size organization. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the upcoming OSHA rule. And for our audience, um, what I'm referencing as the OSHA rule is what Chris and Katie have been referring to as ETS, or Emergency Temporary Standard. We know that it will apply to employers of 100 or more employees, federal contractors, and health facilities. Um, It's coming, but it's not yet here. But based on what we know today, could you tell us just really quickly first what we know so far about who is a federal contractor? And if you receive a government grant from would federal government, could that make you a federal contractor? Okay, so the, the, there's really two parts to your question. In terms of a federal contractor, that is um, somebody who has a contract to perform services with the uh, federal government. And the guidance that was issued by the task force uh, this past Friday um, talked about you have to actually be working on a federal contract, providing services, or you're necessary to that federal contract. Um, That would include somebody such as human resources, janitorial staff, security, Um, So those would be the people that would be covered by the new vaccine mandate. In terms of your second question about the grant, reviewing the guidance that the task force uh, issued, there's nothing to suggest that just receiving a federal grant um, would bring you under the purview of this new mandate. Um, So it's going to be broad, but we don't think it's broad enough to capture a grant where a nonprofit is is receiving a grant of monies from the federal government, you know, following a grant application. I think we feel reasonably confident that it's not going to capture grants. Because in that situation, you're not going to have the mutual obligations. So there's not going to be the, the federal contract. And let's talk about the requirements for a healthcare facility. What type of employers would be considered to be a healthcare facility? So that, that would be hospitals, uh, home health agency, uh, ambulatory providers, and that's in addition to nursing homes. I think I mentioned uh, earlier on that the initial emergency temporary standard applied to nursing home facilities. So really what this is doing is just expanding the reach of the uh, vaccine requirement. And I think it's um, those facilities that are that receive Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement. So that's the hook. Yeah, that's the catch. I mean, they look to see if Medicare or Medicaid is involved. And that's where the the coverage standard is right now, like Katie mentioned. And what if it's an all-volunteer facility? Would this apply to the volunteers at the healthcare facility? They didn't directly address that. Um, But my feeling is that it would just because they're trying to cut down on uh, staff and patient uh, patients catching COVID. So by applying that requirement to volunteers, I mean, that's going to be furthering that goal because there's a chance that volunteer staff are going to interact with paid staff as well as patients. You know, most of 
the listeners to this episode are smaller community-based nonprofits. Not many of them are going to meet that threshold of more than 100 employees. But for those that are kind of close to that line, what is considered more than 100 employees? We don't know just yet how they're going to count employees under the 100 or more employee rule. Um, we expect that that will be clarified by the ETS once it's issued. Uh, we, we are speculating that it will turn on whether you have to submit or file an EEO-1 report, um, that there are standards for determining which employers have to file EEO-1 reports that's a, also based on 100 or more employees, and so that that would be a guide that if you have to file that, then you're probably going to be covered. I think we can expect that once the ETS is issued, they will take the broadest view that they possibly will. And as Katie mentioned, whether you have to file the EEO-1 is probably a good benchmark until we get more concrete guidance. The guidance that came out on Friday about the federal contractor rule, I think we both agreed, it went as bad as far as it could in terms of capturing remote workers who never stepped foot into a covered uh, contractor workplace um, or who don't even, who might work in a covered contractor workplace, but don't actually work on the contract. They're covered. Um, There's all these different, like what's that, a Venn diagram, all these different circles and they're kind of coming together to get you somehow, some way. A lot of overlap. Yeah. And my, my last question, I promise my last question is about testing. If an employer is not subject to the new OSHA rule once it eventually comes out, or if an employer independently decides to go ahead that wants to implement a vaccine or a test weekly requirement, um, how should that testing be handled? Uh, for example, who pays for it? What types of tests should be required? And um, should an employee be compensated for that time? Well, I mean, right now, we for the emergency temporary standard, until they issue that, we really don't know the answer. We can tell you what we feel like is going to happen. I mean, under general wage and hour laws, employees need to be compensated um, for, the, for the vaccine if you make it a term and condition of employment. Um, also, in... in when Biden um, asked OSHA to prepare this emergency temporary standard, he mentioned that major real t- uh, retailers will be issuing testing at, at cost, which suggests that employees may be uh, required to pay for the cost of the test. But I kind of doubt that, but we'll see what happens. I'm sure Katie has something to add. Well, if it's an employer who's not covered by the ETS and wouldn't have that would not have those standards applicable. Um, what we've been, and so that's really the status quo to date is how are, who pays for the testing. The vaccines, of course, are free, so there's no cost-sharing question about vaccines. If an employer has adopted a vaccine mandate and but, but allows employees to test in lieu of the mandate um, and it's an alternative, then we think an employer should pay for it if it's a condition of employment. I I could see some wiggle room in there. If we're giving you an option and you choose the one that costs money, then the employer, the employee should be picking up the tab. But this again is probably not a spot where we want to draw any attention. And if the employer is allowing the test out option, then 
I think the safer course is for the employer to pay for it. Um, I'd be keeping an eye on um, insurance coverage of tests, though. Um, I'm just dropping this in, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I've at least been seeing little balloons go up about insurance companies are pushing back on um, on what's the word I'm looking for on uh, just routine testing without known exposure um, on Which surveillance surveillance be, testing. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. This would be if surveillance testing. To do it once a week where um, where people are doing so much of that that it's starting to you know add up and. So there may be some pushback to surveillance testing that's not based on exposure or symptoms, but just purely based on checking once a week. I will also say that my personal view of this is that weekly testing in lieu of vaccines is not very useful. If you are, if the ultimate goal is to protect the workplace and to protect your people in it, that weekly testing in lieu of a mandate is not, is not all that useful because it's, we know now that COVID takes up to five days, you know, five to seven days to even longer in some cases to show symptoms. And so an employee could be in your building for all of that five days, um, symptomatic or, or non asymptomatic or not symptomatic yet, but contagious. And they're not going to get captured by their test because they tested before and they're testing after. Um, so we're, if that when that comes up for me with my clients, I'm advocating for at least two to three times a week because then you've really got some you've got a better chance at keeping someone out before they've come in when they're contagious. Um, in turn, I think you asked about in terms of testing also um, or the type of testing. Excuse me. There's the rapid at home test that, like frankly, I've used a fair amount. Um, I think I think that's what all of the rapid at home tests are best used for is a pre like real test. And it's if you're symptomatic. I don't think they are as accurate as catching asymptomatic cases. Um, so that would then push us back toward PCR testing, which is in, in a clinical environment, um, which is more expensive, but also is much more accurate in terms of catching asymptomatic cases, they also have a higher turnaround. Um, you know, PCR testing. I got an email today about somewhere offering two-hour PCR tests. Um, so that'll catch on eventually, I'm sure. But um, but PCR testing, I think, would have, that's going to be the gold standard, uh, which there is a delay usually in getting results back. So there's no uh, – that's why I also, you know, again, testing is tough to be a solution to a vaccine mandate uh, for folks who are want to opt out. It's, it's not one for one. Um, it's a, it's a compromise and you hope that that compromise doesn't have a lot of adverse effects um, that affect more people. So it's tough, tough decisions. Yes, they're, Lots of tough decisions, but you guys shared lots of food for thought with us today. We so appreciate you giving us this insight into the many considerations around um, vaccinations and returning to work. Very glad to do it. Thank you. 
We hope that you found this episode of the PBPA podcast to be informative and helpful. We add new episodes every month with short conversations about general yet important legal information for Georgia nonprofits. Remember that this is not legal counsel. Talk to your attorney about your organization's specific concerns. Thanks for tuning into the PBAPA podcast. And to all nonprofits listening out there, thank you for all the good work you continue to do in our community. 